Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is March 17th, 2022. It is St. Patrick's Day. If you're not wearing green, somebody's going to pinch you. You are now prepared to get pinched, or you're prepared to not get pinched, based on my alert to you and reminder of what day it is. Uh, seriously, we have a really great show for today. It is Thursday. That means it's time for the Expert Council Q&A show. i got a great, great lineup for you today. My lineup today includes Ron Paul with the Liberty Highlights. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things in this one today. There's a lot of variety from Ron's team. Ron himself is going to talk about the importance of money having an actual precise definition. Dan McAdams will talk about how the fact that Tulsi Gabbard is being labeled a traitor for simply telling people publicly available information that is admitted by our government itself is a good example of why we should probably disband NATO in the first place. Is a relic of a Cold War that's been over for a long time. Chris Rossini over there is going to talk about why big companies and even the average American, the average Joe, actually loves big government regulations. I completely agree. We'll switch gears then, and we'll hear from the two doctors on the panel. Dr. Ken Berry is going to talk about dealing with gut issues from over-the-counter medications. And I didn't plan it this way. It just lined up like the stars sometimes do. Doc Bones is actually going to talk about choosing between aspirins and ibuprofen. And uh, two different things, but the same thing. The same but different man. Nick Ferguson will talk about dealing with a damaged stone fruit tree. Specifically, this is a cherry tree, but his answers would apply pretty much to all fruit trees and definitely to all stone trees. So it makes it a little more universal if we think about it that way. John Pugliano will talk about, is it time to get out of the stock market due to Ukraine? And I'll wait for John, and I will have a few words to say about that as well. We agree but disagree. It's the same but different, man. Um, Nicole Saw says, choosing a deep freezer brand. Is, is, she's going to talk about that. Uh, I'll have some follow-up on that. Let me back up to John so you guys are not misunderstanding. I don't disagree with his tactic that he comes up with at the as to the overall thing. I disagree with the long-term implications of what's going on. All right, back to who else are we going to hear from? Well, we got one more expert today. After Nicole talks about deep freezers, Jeff Lawton will talk about utilizing a large number of eucalypts or eucalyptus or gum trees uh, through the power of fungus. And I'm going to have some add-ons to that one because the way I'm composting right now, I have never seen fungus erupt the way I have with my sort of, kind of, kind of like, sort of like Johnson Sioux bioreactor that isn't really a Johnson Sioux bioreactor. And I will talk about a quote of the day that's going to set up tomorrow's show. Tomorrow's show is going to go into how effed we are with mass psychosis. And it really ain't about COVID at all because we, you know, we have a new mass psychosis, Ukraine. And I have a ton of examples and why I think we're in deep trouble as a nation. And I'm going to kind of prime the pump with this quote by Bertrand Russell today. And we'll talk more about it at the end. But I'll give you the quote to set your mind in a direction as we go through today's episode. Bertrand Russell said, Neither a man, nor a crowd, nor a nation can be trusted to act humanely 
or to think sanely under the influence of a great fear. And as I often say, these basic concepts never think that the elites and the power apparatus and the people seeking to control society are not aware of them. So if we know we can't trust a man or a crowd or a nation to act humanely or think sanely under the influence of great fear, and you want to get something done, what is a great tactic to get it done? You got it. Introduce a great fear to that society. It is always how we push society in the direction that, I should say we, it is always how they push the society in the direction that they wish for it to go. And I think we're hitting a very critical point in society right now that there may be no turning back from if we don't rein it in as a population, and there's no indication we're going to. So we need to prepare for it not to happen. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit at the end, and then tomorrow we're going to come and give you the examples and show you how bad it's really becoming from people that would otherwise be rational, logical people. I'm actually going to talk about an email I got from a guy who's totally, totally lost it. U.S. military veteran, right, threatening me because I've expressed an opinion about Ukraine, physically threatening me because I've spe- expressed an opinion about what's going on in Ukraine that, that is not pro-Russia. It's simply counter-mainstream media. We are in a really bad place, folks. But don't worry, because we're going to cover that tomorrow. And then next week, we're back to solution, 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 solution. Our solutions have to be within our sphere of control. With that in mind, let's hear from Ron Paul's team. Again, Ron Paul on the importance of money having an actual precise definition. Dan McAdams on why the hell we should just disband NATO. And Chris Rossini on why big companies and the average person actually loves giant government regulations. What is the unit of account? How can you define it? And uh, I tried to get that point across when I asked Bernanke. I was like, what uh, is, is gold money? And, of course, he said, no, it's not money. So he couldn't explain to me why the, all the central banks still hold gold. But do, you th- do you think gold is money? No. It's not money. It's Even a, it's if it has been metal. money for 6,000 years, somebody reversed that and eliminated that economic law. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's an asset. I mean, it's the same. Would you say treasury bills are money? I don't think they're money well, either, do, but they're a financial do, why asset. Why do central banks hold it? Well, it's, it's a form of reserves. So why don't they hold diamonds? Well, it's tradition, long-term <laughs> tradition. Well, some people still think it's money. I yield back. Bob, people ask me so often, when will you see that the dollar is going to crash and have problems? Well, it's in the midst of that. It's been that way for a long time. It's just more rapid now than it had been before. But it's getting, and I think it's going to get a lot worse. That means the purchasing power is going to go down and the uh, income, uh, the wages, And the amount of money, it will never keep up with the depreciation of money. And that's why we'll have a lot of social. Well, it was really, it's an astonishing chapter, Dr. Paul, because Tulsi Gabbard made a point that that A, is objectively true. She said, in light of the disclosure by the Biden administration itself, that the Department of Defense is running bio and chemical labs in Ukraine, because of the danger of this, of pathogens uh, escaping, She said that the U.S. should work very hard with Russia to help get a ceasefire and to secure these facilities. Uh, this is nothing outlandish. She didn't say we should surrender to Russia. She simply <laughs> said this is a potentially a big problem 
and we need to deal with it, and we need to stop the fighting in Ukraine. Well, of course, people like Romney and Kinzinger, they want to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian. The last thing they want is this war to end. Uh, but, of course, we know who suffers the most in war, and that's the innocent. Yeah, I wish we could set up a no-meddling zone. That would be much better, right? <laughs> yeah, because go. if we left the countries alone. But this just demonstrates the folly of NATO expansion in the first place. Estonia has demanded that NATO set up a no-fly zone, i.e., Estonia would like to bring the NATO alliance into World War III with Russia, which could go nuclear. Uh, the, the idea that the United States is going to risk uh, you know, New York, Philadelphia, and Houston for Estonia is zero. It's not going to happen. This just shows how ridiculous it is to have let these hysterical Baltic states into NATO and obligate us under Article 5 to defend them. It shows how unstable they are and how unreliable they are. And it's just Exhibit A for why NATO hopefully will become less and less relevant and finally disappear after this horrible chapter. You know, here we we tend to blame the politicians because they have uh, powers they use them unconstitutionally, even though they swear by the Constitution when they get in. They just totally ignore it. So they use force in the marketplace, and it messes everything up. And the people are largely to blame, too, like I've mentioned. But the people are taught in government schools, and then you have the media that picks it up once you get out of school. So Americans are conditioned, and they are convinced that the government must be a regulator in the market. They are convinced that this is what... It ha how it has to be. And if you're a big corporation, that is music to your ears. If I was a CEO of a major corporation, I would want the people to think that my corporation needs to be regulated by the government. And you never see uh, big corporations complain that, oh, we need free markets. They do not want free markets at all because the government is them. You have all these agencies, and they're all stocked with people that worked at the corporations, and they go to the agency, and then back to the corporation, and they just make money hand over fist. You have the FDA, what we just went through for two years with them. It's all big pharma. The Department of Energy is big oil. The Fed is big banks. They have it locked up, and the American people want it. They want government regulation, and they're getting it. Uh, th because what ends up happening is you have the laws are made by the big corporations for the big corporations. And uh, we, you know, the lonely voices out in the wilderness say get rid of all of these. The FDAs, all of them, get rid of them. But that is such a sticker shock from for Americans. They say, oh, no, no, you can't have the free market. Big corporations will rip us off. <laughs> well, big corporations are using the government to rip us off. You know, so people hate the system as it is. They can see that they're being ripped off, but they are just too afraid of freedom. And until this system self-destructs, as it must, because central planning cannot work, we're stuck with government regulations. But we must do our jobs to try to convince people that once this falls apart, it's free markets that you want. You know, I, I agree with all three of those gentlemen so emphatically. First on... Money. I, I think what we have to understand is the dollar is not money, the ruple is not money, um, the peso is not money, the, the, the Chinese yuan is not money. All of these uh, government currencies are exactly what they say they are, currencies. A currency is, is a means of exchange, a monetary instrument, a true monetary good like gold or like Bitcoin that can't really be meddled with or can only be meddled with, you know, as much as the laws of nature allow. 
So Bitcoin really can't be meddled with. There's a fixed number of units. It works in a specific way. It has a monetary policy. It cannot be altered. Gold can be manipulated to a degree because if gold goes up high enough, the miners will dig deeper and use extraction methods that are uh, more uh, capable of getting more gold out of the ground because they can afford to because the value of the metal goes up. But in the end, there is a fixed amount of gold on planet Earth. So it, both of those can function as money because they are subject only to natural law or imposed limitation. So Bitcoin is an imposed limitation by mathematics. Gold is an imposed limitation by nature. And, and both will function as money. And I don't think it's actually bad to have a currency. I like having money, and then I like doing business in currency. I will continue to do most of my business in U.S. dollars, but I'm going to preserve my wealth through a combination of Assets and money, i.e. gold and silver, Bitcoin, and then things that are more like equities or real estate. That's wealth preservation, and it can be leveraged into currency. And the, the difference is that money will either hold its value or appreciate in value over time. And you can leverage it into currency through intelligent debt and use a depreciating currency to repay a debt on an appreciating asset or monetary instrument, which is how the wealthy have become wealthy in the first place. They do it with corporations that are their own securities that they control, that they can leverage against. They do it with real property, and they do it with appreciating assets or monetary instruments, i.e. gold, which is not that great anymore from an appreciation standpoint, but pretty decent as a, as a, as a hold of value. An appreciating instrument of money like Um, Bitcoin, or an appreciating asset of some other form. Right down to the fact they do it with art. Next up, uh, I completely agree with what Dan McAdams says. I think the fact that we are even using the word trader to describe Tulsi Gabbard, and this is where I have to talk to some of you that have limited mental capacity. I'm sorry. Even in this audience, some of you are there. When I say Tulsi Gabbard is telling you the truth right now, that is not, we should make Tulsi Gabbard president of the United States. That is not everything that Tulsi Gabbard said makes sense. That's not everything that Tulsi Gabbard stands for is something I stand for. That is, in this little tiny area, which is really freaking important right now, she's one of the few people telling you the truth about what's going on. So Gabbard, if you've been under a rock, came out and said, hey, there are these biolabs. They do exist. The United States did fund them. Inside them are really deadly things that if they get out could kill lots of people, maybe if it's something like anthrax fairly locally, but if it's something that's more of a transmissible illness, and we don't really know all what's in there, but we know it's bad, it could spread all over Ukraine, all over Europe, or all over the world, and we could go through COVID 2.0 with people actually dying. So maybe we shouldn't blow shit up around them. Okay? And she's a traitor and a tool of Putin. Okay, this is the problem we have with NATO. NATO is an entangling alliance. And the man who literally authored the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, said we should avoid entangling alliances, and we're seeing the fruits of not doing so right now. Chris Rossini's comments on why people love big government regulations and companies love big government regulations, it, I'll put it to you this simple. Big companies love them because it lets them make more money and squash competition. 
people love them because it does not require them to then think for themselves. We can stop the concept of buyer beware and just rely on other people to do it for you, which is really stupid because the people that are doing it to you are paying for the regulations that you think are protecting you in multiple ways through lobbying and regulatory capture. Anyway, let's go on from there and let's talk about some medical issues. You know, medicine's one place where there's a lot of regulatory capture. What's that? Look it up if you don't know. Anyway, Dr. Ken Berry's going to talk about dealing with gut issues due to an ongoing use of over-the-counter medications. Hey, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question from Ian today, or Ian. He says, my wife has been struggling with chronic gut issues since being prescribed high doses of acetaminophen and ibuprofen after her C-section two years ago. Do you have any diet or supplement suggestions for recovery? Uh, yes, several. So first of all, acetaminophen, which is generic Tylenol, and ibuprofen, which is generic um, Motrin or Advil, can definitely muck up your gut bacteria. Also, there's hundreds of things. If you're eating uh, just a standard American diet or a plant-based diet, there's hundreds of things, if not thousands, that can also muck up your bacterial balances in your gut. I recommend 100% that she eat, start eating a proper human diet, which is very, very low carbohydrate that's full of fatty meat. And this can be uh, red meat. This can be poultry with the skin on, or this can be seafood or, or river food in the form of fish, crustaceans, or shellfish. And she can include some fermented foods like kimchi, real sauerkraut, real full-fat fermented yogurt, preferably that you've made at home in your oven or your yogurt maker. All these things are going to help rebalance her gut bacteria. But the biggest thing you're going to do to help balance her gut bacteria and get it back to a healthy place is to cut out all the sugar whether added sugar or natural sugar, cut out all the grains, wheat, rice, oats, corn, amaranth, millet, quinoa, uh, spelt, all that stuff. And you're going to eliminate all the vegetable seed oils like soybean, canola, peanut oil, safflower, sunflower, sesame oil, and replace those unhealthy inflammatory oils with animal fats. Those, all those together should correct her gut issues. If it does, great. If it doesn't, then it's time to go see your doctor because there could be something else going on in the background causing her symptoms that you're not aware of. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you next time. Totally agree. But I'm going to say something Doc didn't bring up, and I was actually kind of surprised he didn't bring up. Okay, your wife had a C-section two years ago. She's still taking... Uh, albeit over-the-counter painkillers for pain. Okay, I I don't want to pretend to know somebody else's body, but the odds that you are in pain from a C-section surgery, from the surgery itself, two years after the fact, are incredibly low. And I am not a doctor. I don't even play one on TV. But I would have to say, if you are, then something was done inappropriately in the surgery itself. Okay, I'm not belittling a C-section surgery, but I, I, I've known people who've had their entire chest ripped open, spread out, and had quadruple bypass cardiothoracic surgery that certainly aren't dealing with pain from the surgery itself two years later. 
This is so I've known people that have had brain surgery. My wife had what you would call almost brain surgery uh, for trigeminal neuralgia, which is was a hole in the back of her head the size of a 50 cent piece in uh, and, and pulling back the muscles on the scalp and going in and taking out a blood vessel that was compressing a nerve. I've, I've seen some really major surgeries and I've seen some pretty nasty injuries. And if everything is done properly, one should not deal with pain. 24 months after said surgery. So there's there's a couple things that, in my non-medical opinion, just my observational opinion, could be going on here. One, the pain is not from the surgery, and taking the pain medication is actually causing the pain through the disruption to the gut. One, so stop doing it. Uh, two, that something was done wrong, then if that's the case, and I, I, I don't think this is likely, but if possible, one needs a second medical opinion of the surgery itself. Why am I in pain two years after a surgery that, and I don't mean this in any way belittling, but is relatively routine surgery that, that's done thousands of times every day with, with nowhere near two-year pain recovery. Or three, there's another issue causing the pain, also, i.e., second medical opinion. There is no reason that makes any medical sense, in my non-medical opinion, of why someone needs pain medication for a surgery they received two years ago. Now, if it's a back surgery and you haven't completely recovered from the pain, we're talking something different. But what we're talking about here is, again, a very common, very straightforward surgery that is a significant event to have happen to your body. All All surgeries that go into the body, you know, that's beyond stitching up a cut or something, are radical invasive procedures. But I just don't get, I need to take Tylenol, Motrin, whatever, this long after the fact. On that note, let's hear about choosing between different non-steroidal anti-inflammatories from Doc Bones. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author of the brand new, greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when help is not on the way. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Glenda, who writes, I have a question for Doc Bones. Aspirin or ibuprofen? What are the best practices for using aspirin and or ibuprofen? What are the safety considerations for both? When should aspirin be used versus ibuprofen and vice versa? Thank you in advance for your response, and thank you for all you do for the community. Well, thank you, Glenda. I appreciate it. Glenda, if you've ever taken an aspirin, Advil, Motrin, or Aleve, you've been on an NSAID, or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. What you see is what you get, a medicine that has anti-inflammatory action but doesn't contain steroids. You know the most common ones. Aspirin's available as a single ingredient in brand names like Bayer or St. Joseph or combined with other ingredients in products like Bufferin or Excedrin. Ibuprofen is known by brand names such as Motrin and Advil. Naproxen sodium is another NSAID and it's known by the brand name Aleve. All of these are available without a prescription. Both aspirin and ibuprofen work similarly to relieve pain and inflammation by blocking the body's production of certain chemicals known as prostaglandins. There are, however, several differences between the two drugs that are not considered exactly interchangeable, although in survival scenarios you may indeed have no choice. There are several main differences between aspirin and ibuprofen. Aspirin is derived from salicylic acid, originally obtained in the 19th century from salicin found in the underbark of willows, poplars, and aspens. 
Some people are sensitive to it. Symptoms may include asthma-like reactions, nasal congestion, hives, things like that. Aspirin is also significantly more likely than low-dose ibuprofen to cause GI side effects like stomach ache and even ulcers. Some forms of aspirin, like Ecotrin, combat this risk with a coating that prevents it from being absorbed until after it passes the stomach. It gets absorbed in the small intestine. Aspirin should not be used in those under the age of 16, some even say 20, especially if suffering with a viral illness because of the risk of causing a disease known as Ray's syndrome. It's a serious condition that causes swelling in the liver and brain. On the other hand, ibuprofen is approved for use in children over the age of six months and may be given to them even if they're down with a viral infection. Although there's some controversy about this, aspirin is commonly used at low doses to reduce the risk of a heart attack or stroke due to its tendency to prevent blood clotting in arteries. Ibuprofen has less of an effect on blood cells or clotting factors like platelets, so it's not used for this purpose. Ibuprofen or naproxen is preferred, however, over aspirin for long-term use in chronic conditions such as arthritis, and it's popular for frequent medical issues like monthly menstrual discomfort and back pain. Aspirin may be used on an occasional basis to treat headaches, minor body aches, and tooth pain, however, without serious consequences. Both are effective for short-term use to deal with pain from injuries or inflammation. It should be noted that neither aspirin nor ibuprofen is recommended during pregnancy. When taken during pregnancy, NSAIDs reduce blood flow to the baby's kidneys and other important structures. You should know that aspirin and ibuprofen shouldn't be taken together. If you're prescribed aspirin to reduce your risk of heart attack or stroke, realize that taking other NSAIDs at the same time may negate the protective effect. In survival situations, aspirin may be an option for people currently on high-tech blood thinners. It's not as effective as the prescription stuff, though. For certain things, like bringing down fevers, acetaminophen, or Tylenol, is preferred over NSAIDs like aspirin or ibuprofen, although all three work to bring down body temperature. Generally speaking, if an NSAID is deemed necessary, take only the lowest possible dose for the shortest possible time due to risks of GI symptoms or, more rarely, kidney toxicity. As I mentioned earlier, ibuprofen is what you want to use in children. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you support our mission to put a medically prepared person in every family, please check out our entire line of medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So I'll, I'll add with this. I am, and not just doc, like period, like in general, I am far less comfortable with the ongoing use of these medications than almost any doctor probably in the, on the planet. I see them as being very useful for acute situations and I agree with what Doc said at the end there like the absolute minimum necessary to gain the relief necessary and I'll, I'll throw out another example of where I think we need to be careful using them I have a pretty nasty shoulder injury from when I was freaking 19 years old and in the military, actually 18 years old in the military and it is something that will occasionally flare up, sometimes I go long periods of time without really any indication of, that there's really a problem there other than a weird thing that my shoulder does that some of you, like everybody that's ever felt it, I'll like, put your hand on my shoulder and I'll do it. And they're like, it grosses them out what it does. is a grinding thing. And recently I was doing some work in the yard and it didn't really get hurt. It just began to hurt, if that makes sense, right? So it's a, it, an existing situation. It aggravated it. 
and I just gave it some rest from doing like heavy digging, which is what I was doing that caused the flare-up. And yesterday, when I came in, and I did some work yesterday, I just was, took it really easy on the shoulder. I came in and I took some some Advil, and my, I, I was talking to Dorothy, and I said, well, I don't actually want to take it before I go out and work. I'll take some at the end of the day so that when I sit down and relax, put a heating pad on it, do other things, that it helps reduce the inflammation and it hurts less. She said, well, why don't you want to take it when you go out you know, early in the day? One, I want to take as little as possible, but two, inflammation in our body when it's an injury versus a chronic inflammation due to diet or something like that, exists for a reason. It is nature's way of immobilizing part of our body and saying, hey, don't do this thing. Now, there's times when inflammation is too much. We have to reduce it. But mild inflammation in a joint or a part of the body that has an injury is the body saying, dude, stop. And if we use a medication to reduce that injury and then go do work, we exasperate the injury and we make recovery take longer or never happen. So we have to be judicious about how we use these medications. Additionally, if you do want long-term anti-inflammatory effects, there are many things that nature gives us to do this. Ginger, galangal, turmeric are all great natural anti-inflammatories that don't have You know, they don't go and destroy your kidneys over time, for instance. They don't put heavy loads on the liver, especially when used, you know, kind of not all, all of it all the time. So maybe we use some turmeric today, we use some ginger tomorrow. Maybe we integrate ginger into our, our tea if we drink tea on a daily basis, things like that. Um, these tonifying and anti-inflammatory effects of herbs. And then the most anti-inflammatory thing I believe that one can do is, back to Ken Berry, eat a proper human diet. Because so many of the things that we think are healthy for us are actually very inflammatory. You know, your whole whole grain-based diet, that's one of the most inflammatory things you can do. So a lot of these inflammational issues would go away, and instead of using non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, we can remove the cause of the inflammation. Uh, if the inflammation is not an acute inflammation, again, like an injury. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and hear from uh, Nick Ferguson on dealing with a damaged cherry tree. Hey there, Nick Ferguson calling in with an answer for a listener on a damaged fruit tree. All right, hi, Jack. Question for Nick Ferguson. How do I help one of my two cherry trees planted last fall with several south-facing sun-scald spots and a split at the top of the tree? Details, we planted two cherry trees last fall, uh, being in a van both about eight feet tall. At the end of December, I was watering them. They had a very dry fall in Virginia. I noticed several sores on the south side of the branches of one tree. See the picture of the worst one. Also at the top of the tree where the branches form a U-shape is a split. We had some bad winds, and I'm assuming that a branch from the large maple above it fell and split the tree. And we were hoping that the tree would improve on its own, but it hasn't. I'm worried that bacteria or insects will invade it. What should we do to protect or help it heal? I really enjoy the show. Um, thanks for the help, Jan. So I took a look at the tree, and uh, the damaged portions look to me like they're probably extensive enough to warrant a reworking of the tree. I don't know if it's too late in the season to prune where you are. I'd have to look at bud swelling, but if you've had consistent weather below 40 degrees, then it's probably safe to prune. You could probably actually contact um, a local nursery or landscaping company or arborist and get their opinion on whether it's too late in the year to prune. 
Um, if it is, then in this case, I prune below the damage and allow the tree to put out new leaders. With a cherry, you really want to have a good branch union about 30 to 36 inches off the ground where you have basically three to four main scaffold limbs shooting out from the trunk anyways. So um, if these were nurse, typical nursery trees where they basically begin their branching at like four feet off of the ground, that's kind of too high to be managing and picking very easily. So it's normally a good idea to just prune them anyways and rework the tree anyways. So uh, you're probably not losing too much. So as long as the tree isn't breaking dormancy already, you should do that ASAP and get it past that damage and towards good healthy growth this year. Otherwise, you'll want to tie that split portion together with grafting tape and hope it seals shut. And I would also use some diluted latex white paint on the trunk to prevent scald. The trunk damage doesn't look like scald. It actually looks like something scraped the bark off or chewed on the tree or there was some physical damage, you know, something hit it um, or ran into it. That's the short and dirty answer. I wish I could give you more accurate info, but it's kind of hard to diagnose and, diagnose and suggest the best course of action without seeing the tree myself. But personally, I always lean more towards cutting out bad portions than hoping for the best. So if nothing else, you just paint over the damaged part on the trunk and um, get that top split pulled back together. If it's too late in the year to prune, then you can do those two fixes and probably get it through until next winter where you would prune it at an appropriate time to prune for your neck of the woods. Thanks for the great questions, guys. Keep them coming. I'm going to be on a tour through the central states up into Ohio, and uh, I'm going to be looking at land in Tennessee this month. So, going to be out for a little while. Sorry, but my consulting slots are all full up for that one. A couple people have emailed a little bit too late. Um, but I'm probably going to be back through later this year during the summer. So, uh, <clears throat> also, next month I'm planning on a quick trip through the DFW area and up to the Tulsa region. So, if you're along the I-20 corridor and up into Oklahoma... You might want to shoot me an email if you've considered having me out to do a consult. That's all I have for y'all. Until next time, do good things. So now let's hear from John Pugliano on the stock market as a whole. Is it time to get out, get out, get out? You haven't heard that from me. I'm not saying it now. I will come with maybe – I actually haven't listened to this yet. So the reason I'm saying that I disagree with some of John's long-term take on this is that I'm basing it on a very short response in text he gave to the person that asked the question – and I gave him some of my opinion. We'll see. We'll see. I'm going to listen to this with you guys right now, and then I'll come back and say where, if anywhere, I disagree with what John's saying here. Hello, TSP. This is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. I've received a lot of questions from you guys, and I've got a big backlog. Unfortunately, I'm only going to get to one of those questions today. I think it's the most important and timely and relevant. The question came from Jamie, and Jamie's asking... Is it time to get out, get out, get out of the market? Well, Jamie, the short answer is no, not for me. I haven't sold anything. I know a lot of people are afraid that we've peaked out, that all the stimulus money is gone, and the market's going to totally crash. And I can understand that perspective. And plenty of stocks have crashed, especially those stay-at-home, lockdown, you know, COVID-favored stocks, and then also all the meme stocks. 
You look at the meme stocks like AMC or GameStop, those things have been devastated. And even worse yet than some of those, the one-trick pony stay-at-home stocks like Peloton, DocuSign, Teladoc, these stocks have been hit as hard or in some cases even worse than the meme stocks. And the interesting thing about a lot of these stay-at-home stocks isn't that they don't have a bad business model. In fact, something like Teladoc or DocuSign, Zoom, they all have viable products, but too many people just jumped into the trade and their valuations got just beyond all sense of reality. So yes, definitely that part of the market is a disaster, but for good quality companies that have a solid business plan, and there's a number of them out there, they're very profitable, In addition to very solid cash flow, they also have a lot of cash on hand. And since the economy, especially the global economy, has never been fully open because of COVID, I still think there's a great deal of pent-up potential, especially for in-person and travel hospitality type services and products. Now, I know that this isn't obvious to see because the headlines are all negative. It's been a horrible start to the new year. In fact, either the worst or one of the worst on records. The S&P 500 is in a death cross pattern. And all this has come about in the last three months because in early January, there was a confluence of about three or four major events that all came together about the same time. That was the Omicron variant was hitting hard. The inflation numbers were spiraling out of control. The Federal Reserve had to backtrack and say, that it wasn't about transient inflation anymore and that they were going to have to get tough and raise interest rates four, five, or six times this year. Rates themselves were already moving up. And by the time we got into mid and late January, there was already a great deal of concern about the Russian buildup of troops that was on the Ukraine border. Those things all came together, started really driving the market down. And then, of course, the whole fear of war drove up commodity prices even worse. Fuel prices skyrocketing. And then we get into late February and the Russians actually do invade. February 24th, the invasion day, the markets crash at their lowest point. They drop down low enough to wipe out about every single gain that's been made in the S&P 500 over the previous 12 months. And this is all bad news. But what has encouraged me through the whole thing is that although we've had a great deal of fluctuation and some big spikes in pricing and things like oil, and gold. Well, just as quickly as they shot up, they fell back down as equally hard. And although gold did put in an all-time new record high, it was just barely. And although oil spiked up, it never got as high as the previous all-time record back in 2008. Also, in terms of the stock market fear index, if you look at the VIX, that's the volatility gauge, what's interesting to me about that is on the day that the Russians actually invaded, On February 24th, that wasn't the peak for the VIX over these past three months. The VIX actually peaked back on January 24th. That's when it was the culmination of Omicron and rising prices and the fear that Russia was building up troops. And on that day in January, the VIX got significantly higher than it ever did on the actual invasion day in February. Another indicator that I've been watching closely is that the mid-cap stocks, which normally tend to be more volatile than the S&P 500 and did get beaten up quite a bit back in December when Omicron first hit. But over these past couple months, the mid-cap stocks have actually been 
outperforming the S&P 500, and even over the last few days and week or so, even the small caps are outperforming the S&P 500. I know I just spit out a lot of information. Let me just say this. Omicron and COVID are dissipating. I know we're hearing about it springing up in different places, but if you look at the huge pent-up demand for both leisure travel and business travel, and this is what I'm hearing antidotally as I talk to people all around the country and as I do my research and as I see hotel stocks like Marriott and Hilton, both of which have drastically outperformed the S&P 500 over the last three months, I think that's an indication that big business knows that even in spite of what's happening in Ukraine, that the economy is reopening and there's plenty of room to make money even with the higher prices. One other thing to think about, but even with the problems in Russia and the Ukraine and the very likely fact that we're headed towards a new version of the Cold War, in my opinion, that actually builds a stronger case for U.S. equities. Because as I've mentioned before, even with all of our problems, the United States is still the best house in a bad neighborhood. And when it comes to big global money, That money has to go somewhere. They have to invest it. And with all the geopolitical instability around the world, that just means more of that money will come into United States stocks. And again, that's why I think some of these mid-cap and smaller-cap stocks, which have very little exposure to international markets, they're not multinationals, they're starting to outperform the S&P 500. And I think long-term, any Cold War, whether it's with Russia or with China, that will probably not be as big as a detriment to U.S. stocks as a lot of people think it might be. Well, hey, I know Jack isn't in 100% agreement with me, so I'll throw it back. Jack, what say you? So I, I don't know that I really disagree with anything there. But I I, I still disagree with the, the sentiment that was expressed when I first sent this to John, which is basically, this is going to get better. Biden's actually going to get you know less unpopular. I don't think he really means more popular, but less unpopular. Um, here's here's my issue here. John's absolutely right about demand being pent up, and this was something I was trying to explain to my grandson, who's only you know 11 years old yesterday, and it's harder to explain to a kid. I don't think he can understand what actually just changed in the country over the last 60 days or to 90 days, from a standpoint of where a kid would understand it if that kid lived in New York, in that he remembers, you know, two years ago. 15 days to flatten the spread, when Texas went stupid too for about 30 to 60 days, depending on how you look at it. And then everything is kind of going back to normal 99%. And so if you live in a place like Texas or Florida or South Dakota, your life has been pretty much the way it is now for the last you know 20 months. It's not much different. As long as you weren't glued to the TV, letting the TV tell you to be afraid. However, for a lot of the country, the last 60 days was like being let out of self-imposed prison. And so the demand being pent up, now it's released. And I said this when, when we, we really knew, for a, like people like me said the lockdowns were a mistake from the, almost the beginning. But there was a point about 60 to 90 days into it, like if you didn't know it, you didn't want to know it. You were in denial of data and reality and science. That, that's just... But I also said at that time, the danger is, if you open up the world all at the same time, 
The supply chains are screwed, and the demand is there, and when the demand pulls, the supply doesn't meet. That's what we're seeing right now, and it's this bursty supply chain shortage. You go to the grocery store, 70, 75% of the stuff, all you want, 20 to 30, 20 to 30, 25, 30% of the stuff, short supply are not there. You go back two weeks later, the stuff that wasn't there is there, and the stuff that was there, some of it isn't. I just went to the Toyota to drop my wife off last week. There were maybe 12 new cars on the lot. There were maybe four or five used cars on the lot for sale. And this is the biggest Toyota dealership in Fort Worth, which is huge, by the way. And they have a new car and a used car center kind of right next to each other. The building for the used car center lights are out, and there's zero cars. They took the few used cars they had, moved them over to the new car side of things, and then have a skeleton staff in there selling cars. And the people that are selling cars are selling cars that are due in three and four weeks out. How do you recover when you don't have the widgets to build the gizmos to make society run? And then when you add Russia to this, and you add what I believe is an absolute willful destruction of this country, more on that in my episode tomorrow, it's going to be fire. I don't see this as a short-term issue. And I don't see this as something that's easily corrected. That said, I'm not for get out, get out. I'm for get allocated correctly. You need to be in the stocks that will do well during this period versus just the market. And if you have a guy like John, you're good. But if you don't have a guy like John, if you're just in random indexed funds, you could get really hurt over the next couple of years. This is not a short-term problem. And it will all hinge on what happens in Europe And I would say this, if the United States and NATO would stop giving the Ukraine false hope, they would take the peace deal that's on the table and the war would end in a week. And then we would be back to the problems we already had. We wouldn't have Russia exasperating the problem. Okay? That's what would happen. I don't think that's going to happen, and that makes it worse. But even if that does happen, the supply chain disruptions are immense. It's at least a two-year unwinding if they do everything right, and it seems like they're hell-bent on doing everything wrong. Be careful right now. Tune in tomorrow to understand what's being done to the American people fully. All right, with a very special Outback with Jack. Next up, Nicole Sauce on Freezers. Hi, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast and Holler Roast Coffee with a question from Justin about freezers. What's your favorite chest freezer brand and or model? I currently have a GE 7 cubic foot freezer, been running for 20 years, but I'm looking to add a larger one. I'd like at least 15 cubic feet or larger if it doesn't break the bank. I'd like it to be under a 1,000, but of course they don't make stuff like they used to, so I'm willing to pay more. Okay. I have some opinions about chest freezers. My first opinion about chest freezers is that you go find the expert counsel segment where Sean Mills talks to you about putting sensors in those things that have alarms that go off that let you know if your freezer is coming above, above freezing. This is good both for your 20-year-old freezer and for any new freezer that you're going to get. As, as far as brands, I don't have specific brands I love. I just got a GE and a, a, I think it's a Lano or something. I just got two freezers. One is an upright 
that can be a refrigerator or it has a quick freeze mode and then becomes a deep freezer, which is great if you're processing animals because you can process them, put them in there under fridge mode, then quick freeze them and they plunge down. That lets them go through rigor mortis so you have more tender meat. But I got them both from good old Lowe's. That's right, Lowe's. And I did research on the feedback over durability from the customers. That said, I can also tell you this. For a tank of a chest freezer, consider looking for a used ice cream freezer. You know what I'm talking about? Like the kind that are in, I don't know, like gas stations and whatnot that you can slide open and get your drumstick out of. Those things are very simply built, easy to repair if they go wrong, and they're tanks. They're made for the constant opening and closing. They may take more electricity because the top isn't terribly well insulated, but you can control from that for that with some foam. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is this. No, they don't make freezers like they used to make freezers. I had a great $10 Harvest Gold freezers freezer from the early 70s that lasted from the early 70s till 2012. That, my friends, is a freezer. That is not my experience with off-the-shelf freezers you get now. But you can expect a good 10 years out of them. And if you have an alarm, then that helps you know if you're in trouble. Last thing is the more technology you find on the freezer, as far as sensors and overrides and beepy beeps and all the things they put on there, Wi-Fi enabled, that's just the more things that can go wrong. So I tend to keep my freezers simple and then if you're really, this is not a last, this is, this is, okay, we're shifting gears. If you're really interested in durability, you might want to look at commercial freezers. You know, the kind that are in a restaurant that keep things frozen. Those are designed to be repaired and can work really well and for a long time. They're, they're designed for more abuse. So those are all of my thoughts on freezers. I don't have a specific brand other than when it's a brand that I've never heard of. It's not GE or Whirlpool or Samsung or any of the big names. I'm very skeptical. I want to know what is this new one and why is it going to work? Because there are also a lot of people looking, you know, manufacturers looking to make money that might do things cheaply. And I find I'd rather put a little more money in then end up with a big stinky problem. But remember, you can always avoid the stinky problem by having a sensor or a set of sensors. I like the ones that will both make a noise and track the high-low. So the ones I have, they track the high temp high and the low temp, and then also send me an alert over email or something. Those are more expensive, but then you know what happens you know if you're on the other side of your property because your fridge just emailed you or your freezer just emailed you that you need to deal with some stuff before the meat defrosts. And that's always cool too. And then finally, if you're going to get a chest freezer or a fridge or any of these kinds of appliances, put it on your maintenance schedule twice a year to vacuum out the crap out of the coils. That really helps keep the life of your freezer or your refrigerator 
extended because you don't have the coils overheating or getting getting messed up with all the gunk on them. And it's amazing what you will find under your fridge or freezer when you open up that little panel and put your little shop vac in there. The dust, the the cobwebs, sometimes a mouse gets in there and makes a little nest. All of those things can hurt the life of your freezer. So keep up on that maintenance and you'll probably have a pretty good experience if you've gotten a reputable one. Hope this helps you, Justin, and happy freezing. Make it a great week. So I ha- I agree with everything, and here's here's my observations about this as well. It's hard to find now, but if you keep an eye on Craigslist, Nextdoor, etc., as the supply chain bursty shortage that was in deep freezers has kind of gone away, you may find people giving them away or selling them really cheap, especially old ones that look like crap but still work. My freezer that is the one I think will be the last one to die is the oldest one I have. I got it for free in exchange for going and getting it from a neighbor that lives a mile and a half away, and I got it off next door. They spray painted it. They had cowboy stickers on it. It looks like crap, but out in the garage, who cares? And those older ones were much better built, especially if they were to be kept in a garage or an outbuilding or something like that. And it's not just about temperature control. It's about humidity and some other things on the components of them. I had a brand new one that went dead on me in two years, and it was a one-year warranty, and the guy that came out to look at it about repairing it said it will cost you more than it is worth to repair. And so another thing you can do is when you look at buying freezers, there are, like, outdoor rated. They're not really out. I don't remember what the terminology is, but it's, it's you know, they're, they're rated to be in a garage versus rated to be in a home. And it's more about coatings on a lot of the components. And the guy that I talked to about that was explaining it to me, and I don't remember exactly what stuff he said to do, but using basically spray undercoating on certain components. And you can look that up online and see if you can find it. I just went with buying a better one the second time around. And I got the one I could. My last thing. I completely agree with Nicole. If you can find like the commercial ones that they you know put ice cream in or something like that at a convenience store or what have you, great. Great. They are tanks. However, in general, I say this about chest freezers. Don't. Don't do it. Don't do it. I don't care if it's more efficient. I do upright freezers because you can actually keep an eye on inventory and you don't have a thing at the bottom of the freezer. Now, we have a little chest freezer, and Dorothy and I have our annual freezer inventory coming up soon. And what we've decided we're going to do with our little chest freezer, which we don't really need that much during the non-workshop time of the year, right? We kind of, like, we really load it up. It's, we put almost all the workshop food in it, starting about 45 days out from a workshop. And that way, it won't all fit, but most of the pre-cooked workshop stuff is all in one place. So the cooks just know to grab it out of there. Throughout the rest of the year, what we're going to start doing, we're going to take some milk crates, and it'll hold about four, and we're going to pull from our stand-up freezers basically a week's worth of meat this week, next week, the next week, and the next week. And we're going to stack them into the chest freezer. And then we know, go and get it out of that milk crate, take that milk crate out, set it on the floor. Second week, third week, fourth week, repeat and put them back in. And that may make us more efficient. I don't know it's a very efficient use of the freezer from a standpoint of keeping it uh, optimally stuffed. A full freezer is more efficient than an empty one. 
but it probably makes a lot of sense in us not wasting meat and not not realizing that we have so much available to us because we do store so much meat. My last thing, I completely agree on a monitoring system. The one that I mentioned I lost, even though we were home, uh, we didn't notice it, and whack. Um, I have one I recommend. It is currently not in stock on Amazon. I added a link to it anyway. You can look it up, and you can kind of look at the attributes of it and see if there's something there that would fit your needs. The reason I like the one that I do is you can have multiple uh, remote ends in the freezers and then one station that monitors everything. And since I have one, two, three, four freezers, I like having that type of capability instead of having four individual units. All right, with that, let's take another one. This one on gum trees from Jeff Lawton. And again, I want to send out a thank you to David, uh, who came to the workshop this spring for Anarchapoco, who cleaned this up. This one, you can hear a little bit of background noise in it, but it was unusable before David put it through his filtering. So thanks, David, for making this available because this is a good one. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from a very wet Australia. You can probably hear the rain pouring on the roof. Um, we're probably in a, um, we're going to be in a flood zone pretty soon, I think. Everything's saturated and everything's running off. All 28 dams that say tuna farm. Anyway, we have a question here about eucalypts coming from uh, just south of Sacramento. And um, someone has a uh, 100 plus uh, gum trees, as they call them. I don't know which species of eucalypt that they are. There's uh, quite a few hundred. But anyway, um, these uh, eucalypts are uh, creating a nice windbreak to the house. And uh, and the yearly pruning is uh, starting to pile up. Anything larger than an inch, they're setting away for firewood. But they've heard that uh, eucalyptus is toxic to other plants. So I ha uh, they've been hesitant to use them. Is it safe to chip them up? Uh, for mulch, make biochar, or bury in mounds for raised beds. Other ideas. Well, um, they're allelopathic, allelopathic, right? Only 5% of all the plants on this planet are allelopathic. 15% are actually beneficial to other plants. And 80% are neutral. They have no effect on other plants at all. They don't, they're not good or not bad. The allelopathic plants, they don't favor other plants. They, they, they disfavor plants that grow around them. And their, their leaves and their wood chips are allelopathic as well. But if you turn them into wood chips, uh, which increases their surface area, and then you pile them up more than a cubic meter in size and you keep them damp, when you get ear fungus on the outside of the wood chip pile, then the allelopathy is broken. That's a beautiful indication, and it's very visual. Once you get that ear fungus on the mulch pile, no matter which allelopathic wood chip you're using or leaves, you can mix the leaves with the wood chip, but you've got to have a large surface area like compost for this to happen. That's, nature's got these wonderful indicators, and you just see this ear fungus on the outside. That means the hyphae of the fungi has gone right the way through uh, this mulch pile, chip pile, leaf pile mix. It must be damp. It must be at least a cubic meter, which means it's going to be one and a half cubic meters high, uh, one and a half meters high at least, 
But at that point, you've got mulch you can use on other trees. You've got mulch you can use quite safely. You've got mulch you can include in your garden. Um, and that's a trick that you need to learn about all allelopathic uh, species, that they can be neutralized, and the indicator is the fungi. And it's usually an ear fungus on the outside of the pile, and then you're good to go. So my real quick addition to this is that my kind of like modified, scaled-down, less effort, Johnson Sioux style compost might be really good for this. So what I do is I take goat fence about three foot high, and I make a, a, a ring about five foot in diameter. And I just pile all my compostables in there, and I put some pipes down in it, so like four-inch thin wall cheap pipe with some vents in it. And you, I, I did two because that's how many pieces of scrap pipe I had around. If I'm going to be doing this in the future, I'll go to at least four, maybe five pipes like Johnson Sue does. But it's not Johnson Sue. It's not freaking so high I need to get on a ladder to dump it in. It's three foot tall. I just throw everything in there, and I soak it as I go instead of pre-soaking. It's Again, it's a little different. You can look up my video on it. And... Um, If you did this with eucalypts and you were shredding them and you had leaf and twig both, then you have nitrogen and carbon all in one. And I didn't do the pallet underneath like a true Johnson Sioux bioreactor. I think I would do that the next time I'm going to do it because you get more airflow underneath. But even doing my method, which is very low-tech compared to Johnson Sioux, I have never seen a compost pit Once it goes through that first peak in heat, I mean, your core is still at like 140, and mushrooms and fungal activity everywhere. And so it will probably take longer with a eucalyptic tree or any other sort of allopathic tree. But this would let some of you that have other allopaths that you do a lot of pruning on, let's say pecans, utilize that material. And I would also say, I, would, I don't know this, but I would think if you made biochar, I, I don't think you would have a problem because you're going to burn off whatever that allopathic substance is. And in general, with allopathic plants, right, the plant is going to put the most allopathic substances in the part of the plant that falls off. So the least allopathic part, for instance, of a pecan tree or a walnut tree is going to be the wood itself and the bark. Followed by the next level is going to be like, it's going to be kind of a, a, a swap between like, which one's worse? They're probably about the same. Your, your, uh, your nut sheath, right? So the, the, like when you get a pecan, you know that, that outer sheath on the nut and the leaves because those fall. Because the plant is not wanting to kill everything. What it's wanting to do is stake out its territory so it has a nice clear opening to grow up into a mature tree. So it, 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 it puts these allopathic compounds into the part that falls into the soil around it to, to advantage it over other plants. So basically the only thing that really does well next to a pecan tree is another pecan tree or another uh, juglone species like walnut because they have the same allopath, which is in their case juglone. And then there are certain trees that have adapted to not be affected. For instance, uh, what we call choke cherry or, or wild common cherry. Uh, these types of trees that have, that have evolved in the same hardwood ecosystems that the juglone North American species have evolved, they have developed a resistance to them. Autumn olive doesn't care, right? So there's there's a so that's another way that you can deal with uh, allopathic species. In addition to composting them or making biochar out of them, is to plant things around them 
that can handle their allopathy, and you can usually look that up individually by this species, these things are resistant to it, and you can basically create a buffer zone around them so that that allopathic nature doesn't spread out and affect other plants. So that's just my little addition there. All right, with that, I want to talk a little bit today, and again, I'm going to be short on my segment because I've talked a lot today anyway, and I'm really priming the pump for tomorrow. But Bertrand Russell said, Neither a man nor a crowd nor a nation can be trusted to act humanely or to think sanely under the influence of great fear. There's never been a time where that has been more obvious. I wasn't going to say, I was going to say more true, but that would be incorrect. It's always been as exactly as true as it is now, but it is more obvious now to those that can pull outside of the fear. Our government is running the exact same playbook it's always run, but it is exactly 100% precisely identical to the COVID scenario they ran for two years. That ran out of steam, so they had to switch to something else. And they're doing that with Ukraine. And this is, this is how I want you to just think about this. During the COVID hysteria, they would make a claim, right? A, a claim such as, if you stay six feet away from people, then you're less likely to get COVID. So then scientific data would come out. Not an opinion of some guy on, the, on a microphone like me. Scientific data would come out and say, it spreads through aerosols. Aerosols pass directly through a surgical mask or a paper mask or a, you know a, any kind of a cloth mask. Because the particles are small enough, they just pass through. And therefore, it spreads more than six feet, right? So staying six feet away is an arbitrary number. And then in addition to that, wearing a mask and staying six feet away is also bullshit. The mask doesn't prevent the spread of the disease. And instead of saying something, like the response from the authorities wasn't, Actually, you're wrong. Here's scientific evidence and proof and a study that conclusively shows that you're wrong. We have proven that masks and a six-foot distance work. They didn't have that. So what did they do? They shrieked that you were spreading medical misinformation. They censored you, said you were a threat to your fellow human being, and you were killing people because you expressed an opinion counter to theirs. And they made it as though you were literally Hitler walking around knowingly infected with COVID with a slingshot shooting boogers out of your nose and into people's mouths. That's how, how much they reacted to it. Today, all of a sudden, all the things that we said about COVID for the last two years are pretty much just accepted. The vaccine provided some protection for the alpha variant. In the mutations, it doesn't work, and it certainly doesn't protect against spread or acquisition. Maybe for some people it might keep them out of the hospital, maybe. That's pretty much what everybody says now. When we said it, we were viciously attacked for what's now generally accepted. Viciously attacked. When they said stay at home, save lives, and we said you're destroying people's constitutional rights, nobody's advocating for anybody to stay at home and save lives anymore. right? Because we know it didn't work. We know it had no impact. And, and so the whole thing eventually crumbled, and as it was falling apart, we needed a new fear. Enter war in Europe and our Ukrainian allies. Now, if, if we were to go back to before we even heard that term, while Donald Trump was being impeached for asking a question and requesting an investigation of the president of Ukraine, impeached for such a thing, as though a president doesn't have that right. Now, it's not a defense of Trump as a president. It's a defense of Trump in that situation. It was bullshit. Right? At that point, all of a sudden, Ukraine became our most keystone ally in the world. Oh, my God, our Ukrainian allies. All right. So that at least was the seed was planted. So, hey, we can work with that. 
So now we're in a situation, and when two nations go to war, it is never clear that one side wears the black hat and one side wears the white hat. There is almost always some antagonism and instigation between nations. And nations generally, let's be clear about this, I'm not saying powers of be in military-industrial complex politicians. Nations as a whole generally abhor war because it's very expensive in life and property and money, blood and treasure. So you can go back to World War II. Let's take the Nazis out of World War II, Germany, the, the axis of you know Germany and, and Italy. And let's just go Pacific Theater and the Japanese attacked us. Oh, we were just minding our own business, right? We were doing nothing wrong. We were just sitting there minding our own business. And Japan decided to bomb Pearl Harbor because they wanted it or whatever. No. Why did Japan attack the United States of America? Because the United States of America declared neutrality and then did not actually be neutral. We were funding Japanese, the Japanese enemies, the Chinese at the time, and other Asian area, uh, nations. And we were giving them favorable treatment over Japan, which is actually in direct violation of what they call, which is just saying that we have it, but it's what we have, the internationally recognized rules of war. A neutral nation, therefore, treats all other nations the same. So if I'm actually neutral, and I'm going to loan money to Japan, and I'm going to loan money to China, the interest rates might be different, but they're based on the criteria of the ability of the nation to pay it back. I don't just, just favor one, one that should have a very bad interest rate. I don't give them a good one. And then once you have a good one, I don't give them a piss poor one, for instance. Or I don't say, well, you know, I'm not going to trade with you. Now, when you impose sanctions, you're, 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 you're already declaring you're not neutral. So in, in the instance of World War II and Pearl Harbor Day, we did provoke Japan. Was it sufficient to be you know, worthy of a, of, of a bombing of our naval base? I don't think so. It doesn't mean we didn't do anything. It doesn't mean that we didn't have some culpability. So now when you say, hey, look, then you're a traitor. You're a commie. Well, you hear this guy, this guy's rant tomorrow. And I'm not even going to pick on him. I'm only actually using his attack at me to show the complete disconnect from reality the average person has because of this today. And it's because under the great influence of fear, one will not think sanely nor act humanely. And that's the world we're living in. And this is why I have so much concern for my country going forward, guys. Because when we cease behaving sanely and treating each other with a humane nature, we are very much teetering on what was going on in Germany when the Nazis took over. And, 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 and it, it just comes to me when I think that way. History doesn't repeat, but it always rhymes or often rhymes. You're not going to have... World War II Germany extermination camps in the United States. It doesn't mean what you have that will look far different won't be equally bad or extremely bad if we let it keep going. And there is not a political solution right now because the average person is being subjected to the influence of great fear intentionally. And we will not think sanely, nor will we act humanely. Not as an individual, not as a man, nor as a crowd, nor as a nation, nor as a society. Until we can let go of the fear. And you have to ask yourself why, why, why otherwise sane people right now actually think that what they say or think about Ukraine or putting a Ukraine flag 
on their fence or in their social media profile matters. There is no world in which that matters. It's pure virtue signaling. Like a mask that doesn't work. It's pure virtue signaling. And then, why do they think that even I, who have a show of the size that I do, it actually matters what I say about Ukraine? This guy that we'll talk about tomorrow, losing his mind. I, I know my pay grade. I help the people that want to hear what I have to say think clearly about the situations in their lives and figure out what to do about it. I do not sway politics. I do not sway elections. I do not sway mass public opinion. I can't be, you know, a stooge of Putin, as I've been accused of, for simply telling you what you can verify for yourself is, in fact, true. Just so you know, if I can't actually influence enough people to change the course of the event. But all of a sudden, I'm a traitor and a commie, according to this guy. Why? Because neither man nor crowd nor a nation can be trusted to act humanely or think sanely under the influence of great fear. And that's how everybody's reacting right now, under great fear. And fear, in fact, the influence of great fear, is the mechanism of change for people in power. Every time there has been a major shift in the structure of power and the size of the power apparatus and what the people in power can do, you can go look throughout the history of regulation. Even when it basically did a good thing, fear was used to sell the control. You can go back to the way that meat was cut at the dawn of refrigeration, and there was a lot of illness and sickness that came out of tainted meat in the meat supply. But it wasn't anywhere near as big as the fear that was used to scare everybody into allowing giant bureaucratic organizations and unions to take over all of meat cutting throughout the entire United States. And that was, in the end, it was a pretty, pretty much a benevolent you know, overuse of power. In the end, the problems that were there largely went away. It actually did work. But it was still fear. Now, so you have to ask yourself, what was the goal of, of the whole COVID pandemic? It was to prime you so that you would submit to this for generations. Here's the scary part. It worked. Everybody's, everybody, the vast majority of people's mindset toward government control of their lives is completely different. I'm so old, I remember when the left was anti-war and pro-free speech. Wasn't that long ago? Are you that old? Even if you're younger than me? The left is now anti-free speech. Right? It's, it's anti-free speech. And it's pro-war. Now you can say the left was always pro-war. The left, if Democrats, who even talked about anti-war, were always pro-war. You're right. But the average Democrat, the average liberal, the average Joe or Jane walking around that identified as a Democrat was very anti-war just a couple decades ago. Now, if you're not 100% pledging your allegiance to Ukraine, which most of these people could not find on a map if they were paid $500 to do it, then you're a traitor to the nation. If you're not for escalating a war that does no benefit to anybody in this country at all, you're a traitor to this country. If you're not for securing the border of a nation and opposed to securing the border of your own nation at the same time, you're a traitor to the constitution of your nation. Because neither man nor crowd nor a nation can be trusted to act humanely or think sanely under the influence of great fear. Tune in tomorrow for more. I will paint a picture of how bad this is actually becoming for you. It will be in a live feed, and it will be better if you are in it. Um, and I think it will be a lot of fire. And I, I'm, I'm going to tell you right up front, I'm not going to give you a lot of solutions tomorrow. Because I give you solutions almost every day. 
That's what the show's all about. I think it is a time to take a look at where we really are in the course of human events. So that next week when I come back and I pour solutions on you, just pour them on you. Do you think you're going to drown in solutions? When I do that, hopefully you'll be primed to receive them. And some of you will take things a little more seriously and with a little more impetus to get these things done in your life than maybe you have up to this point. Because we are going to have to have true parallel economies to deal with this. And we are going to also have to, as, as people unplug from this new matrix, this is a new matrix. So I wouldn't say it's new. It's a completely remodeled and upgraded matrix. But as it gets this severe, as they push hard, and I think they've pushed too hard, and it started to hurt, and that's why we need a new ramp. We need a new program into the matrix. Ukraine. God knows what's next. As people unplug, they're going to need a place to go. And we're going to need to be that place. With that, we've wrapped things up. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, remember there's two ways to support us. One is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z. tspaz.com. My item of the day for you is the same one I brought you Monday. It was either Monday or Tuesday. It is the E-Tech City lanterns. You get four of them for 20 bucks. Are they the greatest lanterns in the world? No. Are they the greatest lanterns you will ever see for $5 a lantern? Absolutely. I brought them to you earlier this week because they were on sale. I'm bringing them back today because like over 100 sets were bought when I brought them to you last earlier in the week. And they're still on sale. And with all these supply chain shortages, I don't know how long that's going to stay in place. And did I mention there's four lanterns. They use four AA batteries apiece, and it comes with 16 AA batteries. They come with the batteries. What is the cost of 16 AA batteries? You're getting the lanterns. When you look at it that way, you're getting the lanterns for about 250 to $3 apiece. They're outstanding for providing emergency lighting in all your rooms, keeping kids happy, using on, on, on camping trips and things like that. Are they like the Streamlight Siege Lantern? No. No, that's, a, that's the best LED kind of mobile canning, camping, lamper that there, uh, canting lamper, camping lantern that there is. But you've got the, the, the lowest end one at $26 and the highest end one at about $100.50. These, for $26, you can get a whole box of four all the batteries with them, and you can buy, like, what, a quarter of a box of another four? For the, you know, this is, these are for this use. They go in your blackout kit. Again, what I do is put little bitty hooks in the rooms that I need emergency lighting in, but I only need it when I walk in the room. And, and when, when the power's out, and I don't want to run, you know, extension cords on the generator back to those rooms or whatever, I just put that lantern up on that hook. You don't even notice it until you need it. And then you just reach up when you walk in the room and pull the lantern down. And they last for damn near ever on a set of one set of batteries. So anyway, with that, let's go ahead and also remind you that we have the member support brigade on sale. Tons of discounts, support the show you love at 18.3 cents an episode, 50 bucks a year, but right now it's on sale. Discount code is Mexico22. That gets you a $35 a year rate. To learn more, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, or do the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members. With that, hope you enjoyed today's show. Again, tune in tomorrow. I promise you a firestorm of reality. You're not going to like a lot of what you hear tomorrow, but I give you my word. It's all the truth, at least as I see and believe. And I think that after you hear it, it's going to be hard for you to disagree unless you just don't want the truth. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are 